0: Hello and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Keisha Kijano talks to Andrea Ong. Andrea is a design leader with over a decade of experience spanning all elements of design, focusing on product design today. Empowering teams to leverage design as a strategic tool to solve complex issues, and achieve inclusive outcomes. Over to Andrea and Keisha.
1: We're super excited to talk to you and get a sneak preview into the advice that you can give to others. To kick off though, um, can you please introduce yourself to our audience and share what you're best known for? Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Ong.
2: I'm based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I would say I'm best known for calling it like it is.
1: what are you currently doing? We've talked a lot a bit before this podcast about the exciting things that you're planning to do. Um, Can you give us a little insight on that?
2: You know, I have a lot of energy and excitement around untangling messes. You know, if you come to me and say, I have a big mess and I don't know how to get through it to the other end. I love those sorts of briefs. I love those sorts of problems because there could be so many paths forward. It sort of intersects with my interest in strategic uh, foresight, right? In a sense that you know there are all these possible futures, and um, the world is your oyster. You you choose to you know accept the assignment or uh, the, assi- the assignment or not, as a uh, you know as as you might say on Mission Impossible. And I think that the what excites me about these ambiguous situations is that there is no right answer. It really comes down to how you choose to frame the opportunity, right? Sometimes, if you choose to frame it as a negative in a negative framing, then it will take you down some pretty dark paths. And that I think is important to do just to understand what that dark side looks like. But then there is also the bright side. You know, if you frame it in a positive light and think about what are all the possible futures that you could come out of when you by sort of rolling your sleeves up or and stepping into this sort of messy, ambiguous situation and be willing and open. And, with a willing heart first and, a, and an open mind to explore what's possible, I think that most of us would be pretty amazed at what we learn about ourselves, about the situation, and where we end up on the other side of this. You know, call it a wormhole, if you will. <laughs> Sorry, my my sci-fi my sci-fi nerd is, is that's, that's a good thing. Off.
1: We we like nerds here. It's it uh, makes life interesting and brings lots of new perspective on things. So, wonderful. Um, Talking about that untangling of of intricate webs of challenges and kind of ambiguous situations that organizations face, is this something that you've always been good at doing, untangling these kind of these webs, or is it something that you've had to work on and improve?
2: I would say I've had to work on it because, you know, I think that many of us, we're cultured to think that the world is a deterministic place, right? That there is a solution to every problem. And then we start learning about wicked problems. And then, you know, we start despairing. I think that early in my career, I really thought the world was a deterministic place. Uh, if only I understood all the risk, then I can mitigate every single risk so that the thing would just be executed perfectly. What I didn't realize was that, wow, what I saw as mitigating risk landed on other people as, boy, sure, are a real downer. <laughs> I struggled with that for a long time. And I somehow managed to muddle my way through it with some self-reflection and realized, aha, you know, while the intent is laudable, how I'm going about doing it is just not great. You know, and that this whole like intent versus how you go about doing it is something I continue to struggle with. Uh, sometimes I don't have the best bits and manners, but it really is for me the, the most important journey that I'm, I think I'm still on is to, is to realize that I learned to love the mess and
1: learn to see it as an opportunity versus a problem. And talking about that that process that you're you're going through, where your current thinking is now. I guess where's your where's your starting point where it comes to thinking about a project or product plan?
2: It really comes down to me. I think a lot of times we assume that we know what it is we're getting into or we're getting ourselves into or taking on. And I think that my first place is I just have a listening do a listening tour with every stakeholder. Hey, um, you might be the project sponsor, you might be the person who instigated the project. Great. And I'm going to start to build out who, who, basically get a brain dump, right? I think a lot of times, one of the things I teach my designers is, you know, designers were trained to, oh, give me a brief, make sure it's tight, make sure it's inspiring. And who could write those briefs? Most of us don't have time nor the training to be able to do that. And uh, what I've been teaching you know, my students and my t- designers on, on different teams that I've coached through the years is take that opportunity and use the frame of the project brief as a conversation starter with your stakeholders and take it from there. Let them, give them a space to just brain dump because it's what I call my hope, dreams, and fear sessions. And people have generally reacted really well to it, and they'll just tell me. They'll tell me, you know, what what they're hoping for. They'll tell me what uh, what failure looks like, which is important. Uh, success, of course, we all we all like to think we you know what success looks like, but um, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we articulate it accurately, and often we don't because we can't. Right? You can't know what you don't know yet. But having that space to dream a little if you will helps people actually get some clarity for themselves and then from there right you know you can I, I ask I figure out well who else would be affected by this um, in a good way in a bad way how how will this is if this is a for-profit project how, how will how will the money get made and all of that stuff um, it's, so tempting, and I certainly used to work that way. It's so tempting to think that, oh, you know, I'm going to get all of this very detailed and structured information from the get-go, and that's never possible, right? It really just comes down to giving yourself a little bit of space. Usually within the space of a week, I can get to a, call it a shitty first draft of what I think the brief might look like, and then that becomes the next artifact to have another conversation to really start to narrow in and hone in on where the space really is that we think we might be able to do some do some good uh have some fun create some possibilities and usually by the end of the week here you have some you'll have a good enough idea to get going and then from there I may start prototyping different ideas. You know, it could be it could be conceptual, it could be physical, it could be a mock-up, it could be anything at all. It just depends on what it might be, um, because if ideally it's something physical that someone can react to, right? Whether it's a mock-up of a screen design or a mock-up of, you know, an object, it helps people. It feels more real and then the type of feedback you can get from an artifact that someone can react to is just so much richer than talking to people in abstraction, you know, oh, tell me about this. And how would that work and blah, 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 blah. And this is why I don't like, you know, what I call um, abstract discovery. You don't get very good. It's
1: it's literally the definition of garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) With the, the, all the things that you've been discussing, I wonder your this these first steps, this advice. Would you give kind of like startups, entrepreneurs um, that have just begun the process, the same advice as that you would give kind of big corporate teams who have already got like an established and maybe an established product that they're maybe developing or doing like a releasing something else would you would you still go through the same process of the stuff you've been talking about was it slightly different
2: I would start the same way right making sure that because that first conversation helps you build rapport because with that rapport once you build that up you can have very different conversations than if you if you didn't I mean at least that that's how it works for me beyond that though it really does depend on Where a business is, if it's a startup, is it a scale up? Is it an enterprise that's, you know, even within enterprise, there's, um, there's a little bit. So I was talking to someone this morning, a scale up behaves almost the same way as an enterprise, in the sense that you are now no longer in the disruptive mindset, you are now in the defensive mindset. And when you're defensive, the types of, th- the places that you allow
1: yourself to go are very different than when you're a startup with nothing to lose and everything to gain. That's really like a very interesting point that you have there, but I've never heard that kind of a term of exploratory versus defensive. I think fascinating.
2: You know how like, you know, used to be it used to be the the hip word, right? Disrupt yourself before your competition can disrupt you or before someone else disrupts you. With maybe... Well, I don't hear that very much anymore, but I think it is very much still in play. I think it maybe it's just now such a zeitgeist within tech that we don't need to talk about it anymore, right? No sooner than some startup finds traction, you now have product market fit and you start building into something and you now you're in your growth phase and everybody's looking to you to get that hockey stick growth trajectory and... Now you start thinking, oh my gosh, I, I can no longer be as adventurous or open minded as I used to be because now I have this thing that I, I can't afford to lose. Right. And I think that, you know, between scale ups and enterprise, where there might be a little bit of a difference, it's in my experience anyway, right, in a scale up, you don't have as much runway as an enterprise might. Right. So when I worked in enterprise, of course, there are many situations where you really couldn't innovate because, you know, there's legacy systems, there are legacy incentive structures in place, all the rest of this stuff. But when there are sort of innovation um, budgets, an enterprise, innovation within an enterprise setting can feel very liberating on the one hand because you tend to have more runway to play with. But sometimes because the runway is so wide and potentially long, it doesn't force you, it it doesn't give you enough constraints. And so the ideas simply go everywhere and it takes a long time because there aren't enough constraints, right? And people think that, you know, well, you know, I want to build a big thing and it's, it's a struggle to kind of help folks working within an within an enterprise space who really bought into why innovation is important to remember that rome wasn't built in a day and if we approach innovation work with a monolithic perspective as in oh it has to be it has to be scalable from the ground up then we lose a lot of nimbleness and agility because now you have to take time to kind of work through the, the systemic structures of the business and well that then slows everything down to a halt and to me the risk there is what if this idea just doesn't land what if you took we took so long to execute on this idea that the markets left us And so that that really truly is a fine balance. And the only way I've, you know, experienced it in terms of how to manage that is you have to have someone who has the right mindset. Not to not to be so in love with the solution (laughs) as it exists today, not to be so in love with the first solution or even the third solution. And to think that and to assume that it will work. Right. It's much safer to assume that it won't work because then that forces you to think a little bit more with, think a little bit more broadly about different possibilities. Think a little bit more deeply, but only as deep as you need to get to, right? We can't know everything. There is a little bit of a sense of you can research something to the nth degree, to the point of,
1: you know, complete knowability. Boy, wouldn't that be greater life were like that? The death enemy. I think you mentioned you kind of touched on it a little bit of what you were saying, but almost talking about teamwork and bringing different stakeholders together. You don't you do a lot of sort of reconciling internal aspirations for, you know, rapid product releases with external demands for like uh, a more measured pace, thinking things through. Um Could you talk us through kind of the importance of, we're talking about before, the the power to act and sometimes the necessity for a neutral third party?
2: Those are sort of, I mean, they're related, but I think they're somewhat tangential, right? The first question really is about balancing the, the whole Mark Zuckerberg thing from, you know, a decade ago, right? Move fast and break things. I think that, and then, you know, now it's been sort of, transformed into oh no no it's about moving fast and learning things I think that that in itself while it's catchy and makes for a really good sound bite again context matters right if if what you are building is let's say it is for a small group of individuals and what you're building the domain that you're building in is less a the consequences of a bad decision needs to be manageable. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, a big telco in Canada had switched um, payroll providers. And, you know, the the previous payroll provider was an industry stalwart. Big, slow, but dependable. Switching to an upstart provider Seemed like a really great idea because, you know, it's more innovative and, and maybe it's a little bit more responsive, better customer service, maybe a little bit better price point. But what had happened was for the last three months, there have been payroll issues. People were not getting their paychecks. Those are, that's a very different scenario because the impact and consequences are much different than I build an app for people to have fun with, and it doesn't work. And especially if the app is free, because you know I'm planning to monetize it. But right now it's still in the building the audience phase. So if the app fails and the audience is unhappy, that's okay because the audience is actually the product. But let's say my, my app has developed enough traction in the market and now I have advertisers and other folks who pay to ensure that this app works. And then I go offline, or I have some serious bugs in the system that prevents people from accomplishing their goals, especially the people who have paid the money to accomplish those goals. Now my my room for error, my margin for error, and my, and my buffer for experimentation um, is a little bit narrower, and I have to be smarter about how I experiment. It doesn't mean you can't experiment anymore, but it means you have to change how you experiment. You know, in those scenarios that I talked about, you think potentially, it again, it depends on, depends on the scenario. I think that often, I think the cue for getting a third party involved, for me, usually the signs are people are stuck or there are a lot of um, moving parts and no one is sure how to orchestrate the movement of all those moving parts and so think about it like you know the an analogy i've been using lately is when you're a startup is as if you were just your individual person so let's let's say it's you and me a whole f- a few other folks in the room And, you know, the job at hand is to spin. And so we spin on our own axes. We spin on our own circles. And we can spin as fast as we want. We can spin in any direction we want because we're independent. We're not interconnected. But now as a scale-up, as or an enterprise, we're now holding hands. And we might be holding hands crossed. Um, I might be holding hands with someone in front of me and someone behind me, someone else might be hooking their foot into my left ankle. So now we're interconnected in many ways. And now someone says, now spin. It's going to be a lot harder to spin as a single unit when you're all interconnected that way. And this really comes down to, I think a, you know, you can't see the forest for the tree situation. If you're you're enmeshed in and all these hand holding and ankle <laughs> ankle connections it's harder to be able to see you know what when you should time it and what which direction you you should spin whereas a third party can have a completely different point of view and vantage point as well as altitude and then be able to say hey you know that part of the system is a little bit more it may be the limiting factor here and so use that as a pivot point because the the more loosely connected pieces, can it's almost like, you know, you have a trainee you have a caboose, right? And the more loosely connected pieces have a little bit more flexibility to move around than the more tightly coupled pieces.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team.
1: Jumping to a a kind of a different topic on that. So we've talked pre-recording about the importance of recognizing the, the impact of human dynamics on success. You mentioned in projects that you'd like to create spaces for your team to share their experiences, that it fosters kind of a collaborative environment where each voice is heard. Um, was this inspired by someone in the past doing this on a project that you were on? Um, or is this something that you kind of come up with?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I wish someone would have shown me that, but, you know, I stumbled along for a very long time <laughs> until until someone sort of said, well, have you spoken to anybody about this? And it just stopped me cool. I I realized that, oh, you know, this all sounds great in my own head. And then I tried saying it out loud and boy, it didn't sound that great. Now that I said it out loud, and then once you kind of say it to another person, it starts to sound even less good. And then when the other person starts to react, now you have some different perspectives. And I, 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 I definitely learned that the hard way on my own. And um, wish it wouldn't have been that way. But, you know, I guess we all have to learn somehow. But, yeah, truly, I have never, ever, ever had anything that I have done not been improved by talking to another human being about it. I was talking about this this morning, right? You know, the way I've come to this is realizing that there's maker time and then there's jam time. And, you know... Maker time is absolutely necessary because, you know, it's hard to jam with someone when your thinking is all over the place and incoherent. But once you have a starting point, even if it's messy, even if it sounds incoherent, it's time to take that virtual artifact, if you will, or conceptual artifact and go and test it in real world, right? I always like to say, you know, a lot of ideas um, don't survive first contact with reality. And the only way for it to survive first contact with reality is to take it to as many loops and as many of these feedback loops as possible right you work a little take it to the next take it jam with someone it almost always makes it 10x better then you go refine it and then you do it over and over and over again there's um there's a thing called the ooda loop i'm not sure if you've heard of it and so it's a it's an acronym um, and, it can, and it comes from the US military and it was developed by a, an air force. I think he was, was a lieutenant, colonel or something. And he was teaching soldiers to fight a different kind of war. And so, you know, the old set piece battles no longer applies in modern warfare and so you can't sort of you know as a general go and plan your moves and then go into your set piece battle and then just execute. So it's like a dance, right? But modern warfare is a lot more ambiguous, a lot harder to nail down, it's a lot more nimble in terms of what moves people would make. And so John Boyd came up with the OODA loop, which stands for first you Observe what's going on around me. Then you orient. Orient yourself to see, hey, self, have I seen this situation before? Right? So this is now about pattern matching. (laughs) And D stands for, then you have to decide to act. A lot of times we just sit around and observe and orient. You know, do research until the cows come home and never take action. But D is a reminder that at some point you must decide what you're dealing with. But then and only then do you act. So observe, orient, decide, and then act. And that loop, I go through multiple loops of that, right? And there's a theory that says, you know, the the person who goes through the most number of these loops, the fastest will come up, will be the victor. Because can you imagine you're in a, you know, you're in a paintball, uh, battle with your friends, and you you and you just sat there and, you know, observed and oriented for end, endless time, endless amounts of time, I mean, you'd be spray painted with so many things that you wouldn't even have a chance to decide, right? So at some point, you do have to be able to decide, and the more often you do it, the better you get at it, then it starts becoming muscle memory. The more often you do it, you can start to pattern match a lot quicker, and the pattern matching occurs in the orientation stage of the ODA loop. And so, with these pattern matching, you now develop heuristics, and heuristics, at the end of the day, is just a simple survival mechanism to ensure that you know, hey, lion, ooh, run, versus lion, hmm, let me just orient. This is this some kind of a feline? You know, and next thing you know,
1: um, yeah, I like that. I think that people need O O D A on a on a post it note, just on the side their their the laptop or their computer screen um, until that becomes second nature.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you do have to, you do have to, you can't learn this intellectually, right? You have to actually just physically work through it. I was talking to one of our customer, you know, a customer I was working with because I was having um, a customer advisory board session with him and, you know, he said, Andrea, like the, the team still doesn't have the muscle memory, to use the software in that very intuitive way, if you will, right? You know, the way we would intuitively know to swipe left, swipe up, all that kind of stuff, it takes time to build up that muscle memory. And the only way you'd build up that, well, it's called muscle memory for a reason.
1: No, exactly. I guess something that we we do at kind of the end of this podcast, we've heard a lot about your advice and you've had a little bit, kind of a little snippet of what you can offer, um, other people in terms of advice mentoring but we also want to learn a little bit about kind of who you are and how you think so we have a few quick fire questions to ask um if yes, don't think about them too hard it's the first thing that comes to mind um question number one where do you go for inspiration for to, almost to to feed your creative brain underwater
2: <laughs> scuba diving and underwater photography I think you know. I love creating images underwater because again it, you can't stage it. That really gets my creative juices going because now I have constraints. I have a little bit of the element of the uncontrollable. So it makes me, well, it forces me to go through my OODA loop. Hey, self, where am I? How deep am I? How much air do I have? How much no decompression time do I have? All of those constraints. And then I will decide, okay, This is the space I have. This is how much time I have. And this is the physical space I have to create this image. What's available to me to create this image? And that's it, right? And, you know, someone else might swim along and have a different set of constraints, and they will be able to capture a different image than I was able to in the context of my constraints. How would you describe your leadership style? I am definitely a firm believer in participatory leadership. Because it doesn't mean participatory leadership doesn't mean that you're leading by committee. It doesn't mean that you don't make decisions, but it means being transparent with the people involved to help them see the context, to help them see the constraints that I am working with, so that when the decision gets made, you may not be happy with the decision, but you understood. The constraints and you at least can recognize that there may not have been any other decision that was possible in that context right and to me that really is truly what it means to disagree and commit a lot of people think that disagree and commit is you know well i don't like your idea so but you're telling me i have to move forward with it anyway i have to play along anyway well i'm going to be very resentful the whole entire time and all the rest of that. And you can't blame them for thinking that if they didn't have the opportunity to understand the context that led to the decisions, right? That was, that were made.
1: The next question I have, I have two more questions. Next one is what is the best piece of advice that you have ever been given?
2: Uh, It was from a book by Michael Bungay Stanier, who is a Vancouver based coach he just won the Marshall um, Goldsmith Coach of the Year uh, Award. So, you know, pretty legit. I was struggling through some leadership styles and work styles back in the day. And one of my product owners said to me, Andrea, you need to read this book. And so he told me which book to read. I read that book and it was, what got you here, will will get you there. From there, I started exploring. And that's what led me to Michael Bungay Sanier and the coaching Habit. You know, there are seven coaching habits in that book. Let me tell you, I just remember the one because the one is so powerful. It has stood me through so much drama. And that one number one piece of advice that he gives is stay curious with just one more question. (laughs) Because before that book, um, there was another piece of advice that one of my managers had given me. And it was be humble and And then Michael came up with this, be curious for one more question. And really, I think the curiosity is the foundation of humility. If you truly want to be genuinely, authentically humble, it's not about putting yourself down. It's not about self-deprecation. It is about curiosity. Hey, tell me more about this thing. I see. Is there anything else you want to tell me? And what else, right? That question, and what else? And it's amazing how much you
1: learn, which is so much more powerful than simply being given a solution. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. I guess with all of that, I have one more question to ask you. Um, It's a question that we ask all of our guests here on the podcast. Um, It's a bit of an odd one to deal with. But um, I'm odd, so I'm okay with that. I guess now the question kind of links on a scale of one to ten how weird are you I would say I'm an
2: 11 um you know on my on my on my personal blog my self-description is you know I do a lot of stuff I'm a part-time underwater photographer part-time
1: sailor part-time a
2: lot of things but I am a full-time misfit
1: absolutely love that and I love how that you embrace that as well
2: Yeah, you know, I struggled with it for the longest time, right? Uh, As a child, I was an introvert, and you always felt out of place, not accepted. Um, You know, I, I was that weird kid that, you know, I knew a lot of different people, but I wasn't in with any one group. I would have different groups of friends that I would hang out with, and I never felt I really belonged. And I struggled with that for a very long time. And it's, you know... I mean, I hate to admit it, but it's only been very recently that I've embraced. You know, maybe in the last five years that I've embraced the fact that I am a weirdo, I am a misfit, and I will have to learn to embrace that because if no one will embrace my misfitness and I don't either, then <laughs> where where do I stand in the world?
1: I think that's also a good be- bit of advice. Um, but yeah, embracing and loving yourselves. Well with that thank you so so much for coming on the podcast giving your advice and sharing a very broad overview of the advice that you could give I'm sure we could talk for absolutely ages about all the little go into lots of rabbit holes and lots of the different things that we've talked about but I just want to say thank you very very much for your time
2: well thank you again for bringing out what I feel has been my best and you know that is what a coach does so thank you <laughs>
0: So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.